0: Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Last summer, last summer I had the, the uh, fun opportunity to take Caden to a movie, and he decided to invite his good friend Liam, uh, Hugh and Vanessa's son. And uh, we went off to the movie theater. It was a Monday morning. Uh, schools were out, so it was really, really busy. And uh, we get there, and... Uh, Kind of lobby area is packed with people. The line is kind of snaking its way around the lobby, and uh, so we stand at the back, uh, holding Liam in the left, Caden in the right, and uh, we wait and we wait and we wait. And uh, after about seven or eight minutes, I look off to my right and I see the those electronic um, scanner things, you know, at the movie theaters where you can pay electronically. So I grab the boys. I'm say, I say to them, "Come, boys! I've got a great a great way where we can get our tickets early." So off we go. Uh, off to the electronic scanner, only to discover that it was broken. So uh, we make our way back to the end of the line, and during that time, another seven or eight families had joined, and we have to wait longer. So I'm standing there kind of uh, mumbling under my breath, grumbling, and Liam looks up at me, and if you know Liam, uh, you'll know this is exactly him. He looks up at me and he says, hey, Mr. Steve, are you impatient? And i pause for a moment and just made sure that what I was going to come out of my mouth was godly and honoring, and I said to him, of course I am, Liam, and he says to me, my mother says that you're not. <laughs> forgive, me, forgive me for sharing a story which I've shared before, and some of you have heard me share that story before, but I think it um, humorously introduces what I want to speak on this morning, and that is dealing with Delay or impatience? How do we cope with, how do we understand, how do we deal with patience or impatience? I think dealing with delay has probably been one of the biggest struggles that I've had in transitioning from uh, 12 years of business into full-time ministry. Uh, most of you here who are in business will know exactly what I say. When, uh, when you do a project, when you approach a particular project, the measurables are very tangible, it's very, it's, it's, it's very easy to measure progress or success. And whilst they might not be instantaneous, the fruit or the results of your work is, is right there. Within days or within weeks or certainly within months, you start to see the benefit of your actions. But in ministry, that's completely opposite. In ministry, you can spend a day in prayer or you can spend a day studying God's Word. And and while there are times where you do attack a particular project, most of the fruit in ministry is often only seen months or years or even generations later. I mean, we all know the reality that Scripture teaches that we will only fully understand the impact that we've had on this earth once we come to the end of the age and we stand with Jesus and we look back on the things that He has done. In, in us and through us. If I'm honest, I'd probably have to say that impatience is probably my biggest weakness. I really struggle with impatience. I hate being late. I want things to come quickly. And even on exciting events like Christmas, I cannot wait. Even as a 42-year-old, I cannot handle the anticipation of Christmas Eve because I want to open my gifts or whatever gifts my, my kids or my wife has bought for me that that particular year. Impatience is a really, really difficult thing. And I think the reason why or when impatience manifests most in me, it's when I have or when I give into or listen to the lie that what I'm going to have one day or what I'm going to achieve one day is going to bring me absolute peace or absolute security or absolute confidence. Do you know something of what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. Early, in the early days of, of, Starting this church, one of the things that I uh, was wrongly so desiring was for us to be a church of more than a hundred. At that stage, we were twenty or thirty people, and I was so consumed by the numbers game, so consumed by desiring to to lead this big church as if it was going to kind of authenticate the call of God on my life. And I spent months and years just wrestling with God. God, when are we ever going to be a church of a hundred? And you know what happened? That day eventually arrived. I was impatient for that day, and that day eventually arrived. And I realized there was nothing in it. There was no fulfillment in it. There was no sense of, 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 of peace or no sense of the accomplishment of God. And this is the reason, because I had made that thing the center of my life. Whether it's the numbers game that I was playing or whether it's something that, is, that God has promised you, let me warn you, let me encourage you, friends. When you place the call of God or the destiny of God or the plan and purpose of God or the promises of God in the center of your life, taking, a, taking the place of Jesus, we, we're setting ourselves up for, for, for failure. We're setting ourselves up for hardship. And also, one of the things was, it, because of my impatience, I was... I was not appreciating or enjoying the journey of God taking me from where we were to where He wanted to take us to be. You'll be glad to know probably 75% of the time I've dealt with the numbers game. I have to be honest, it's still a bit of a wrestle at times. Impatience is still a wrestle in my heart, but God is working in, in, in me and God is challenging me. Maybe you struggle with impatience. Maybe God has promised you things that you haven't seen the fulfillment of yet, Maybe God has spoken things over your life that you know is from him, but because you haven't seen the fruits of that, because you haven't seen the manifestation of those promises, you're asking God, when? When, Lord? When is this going to come to pass? Or perhaps even some of you are saying, Lord, did I even hear you correctly? Did I even, did I even uh, uh, understand your call and your destiny on my life? I'm sure these are struggles which some of us, or hopefully all of us, face at some point. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 4, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, that we obtain the promise of God. We, we walk into the plan of God. We walk into the destiny of God through faith and patience. And so the question I'm going to try and answer today is what do we do? What does waiting on God look like? What does it mean to have patience in God? What does faith in God look like? How do we wrestle with some of these issues of waiting? And it often seems that God is the one who's maybe pushing the pause button on the call and destiny on our lives. I think First Samuel chapter 16 wonderfully answers some of these questions. But also, it's a great uh, passage for us to look at as we uh, introduce or as I, as I unpack what we're trying to achieve through this new series through the book of David. Oh, sorry, through the book of David, through the life of David. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read a couple of uh, uh, verse 1 through 13. And I'm going to kind of just pause every now and then, make some comments. And uh, shouldn't be too long before we're done. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen... Notice that word, I have chosen. God has chosen one of his sons to be king. 1 Samuel is written at the same time as Judges and Ruth. Last week, Nate wonderfully landed the series in Ruth, and 1 Samuel literally is the very next chronological book as we trace ourselves or walk our way through the history of Israel. And so the introduction to 1 Samuel could very well have been the same introduction that was given to us in the book of Ruth. These were the days, remember? These were the days when the judges ruled. These were the days when Israel had no king, and men and women did exactly as they pleased. Remember those dark days that we described in Ruth? Ruth talks of a a physical famine that was on the land, and even though the famine has lifted off of Israel, it is still a very spiritually uh, dry, very spiritually dark time for the nation of Israel characterized by, by self-reliance and independence and complete rebellion and disregard to the ways and the, and the will of God. First Samuel chapter 4 describes quite tragically the, the peak of Israel's decline. It tells of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the Old Testament representation of the presence of God. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, when it, whenever Israel had the Ark of the Covenant, it represented that God was with them. And 1 Samuel chapter 4 describes the tragic events of the Philistines coming and capturing the Ark of the Covenant. And Eli, who had been judge or or priest and prophet over Israel for the last 40 years, hears of the news that the Ark has been captured and that his sons had been killed in battle. And Eli falls over and he dies. And his daughter-in-law, and it's almost like it literally could have been written in a Hollywood movie script, his daughter-in-law gives birth to a son and she names him Ichabod. Not a name I would suggest any of you who are trusting to have children or are about to have children. James, don't name your child to be Ichabod, please. Ichabod literally means this. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. A tragic, tragic scene. And into this, into this kind of uh, darkness and into this despair, Samuel is born. First Samuel 1, uh, uh, 2, and 3 describe the incredible birth of Samuel through his mother, Hannah, who was barren, and she cried out to God and God answered her prayer and and, and Samuel is born and he's raised up and he eventually becomes the greatest but also the last judge that would ever rule over the nation of Israel. God called Samuel to usher in a king, King Saul. But unfortunately, Saul was just like all the other pagan kings from the nations that surrounded Israel. Saul ruled Israel imperialistically. Saul ruled Israel for his own benefit. Saul ruled Israel in complete disregard to the plan and the purpose of God for the nation. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the, 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 the sort of the, it's the very chapter before the one that we have had a look at, describes this, the kind of as it were, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to Saul's disobedience. He had been given an instruction by the Lord and he completely failed to do it. And so Samuel arrives on the scene to tell Saul, Saul, the Lord has rejected you as king. The kingship, the nation is is about to be handed over. And Saul, in this again, a great movie script, Saul turns, sorry, Samuel turns to walk away from Saul. And Saul lunges out and grabs hold of Samuel's robe and it rips. And he's left holding the scrap of material and samuel says to saul in the same way has the lord ripped out the kingdom from you and given it to somebody else this incredible scene can you get your mind kind of just thinking around these things this incredible scene samuel is dejected samuel is heartbroken the very one that god had asked him to pray over and anoint has has walked away from the plan and purpose of god and samuel's left asking the question did i miss god in some way Maybe that relates to you. Maybe sometimes or at, at some point in your life you've made a decision that you felt was right in God, but it didn't work out. I want to say the Lord was not finished with Samuel, and neither is the Lord finished with you either. In verse 2, let's look down at verse 2. But Samuel said to the Lord, He said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and, and will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer, take a young cow with you, and and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So as prophet and priest and as judge over Israel, Samuel had the responsibility to kind of do a circuit, kind of like an itinerant ministry tour through the nation of Israel, visiting various towns, visiting various villages, and coming to to execute the, 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 the lordship of, of God over the nation of Israel. Sometimes he would have to come and rebuke the village or, or 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 that particular family or particular town. And because of Israel's disobedience, let me tell you, a lot of rebuking was happening at that particular time. Other times, Samuel had the responsibility to take a sacrifice and lead the town or village in a worship service. So I want you to imagine Jesse and his family are kind of cooped up in their house and they hear rumors that Samuel is coming down the road to administer uh, uh, either justice or lead a worship service. And so they're kind of peeking through the curtains that were non-existent in biblical times, but just go with me, peeking through the curtains and, and asking themselves, has he got his guitar? Is he, is he going to lead us in a worship service? Or has he got a whip? Is he coming to, to, to rebuke us? Is he coming to, to, to speak harsh words over us? In verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, here it is, this is where they were trembling, asking the question, when, the, when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, which simply means get your hearts ready. It's something that we do or we should be doing every time we, we, we gather together or, or once a month if we break bread together as a church. Consecrating yourselves simply means just getting your hearts Prepared before the Lord, bringing your hearts before God to allow Him to, to speak to us and to, and to minister to us. Consecrate yourselves, He said, and come to the sacrifice with me. And then Saul consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. It's fascinating, if you did a study on that word, the Lord's anointed, it literally is the Hebrew word for the Lord's Messiah, or the Lord's Christ. Samuel is convinced, here is the deliverer of Israel. This has to be, I mean, Samuel is invited to, or told by God to go to Jesse's house, and in walks the firstborn of Jesse. You guys know, I'm sure, the the importance or the significance of the firstborn son. In walks the firstborn son, and he's, he's a handsome dude. He's a handsome man, and he's, and he's tall. I mean, there's nothing wrong with handsome and tall, is there? Nothing wrong. Amen. Jonathan Goldsway, do you agree? Handsome and tall is good. In walks Eliab, and, and Samuel says, Man, he's just like Saul. He's a head and shoulders above the rest. He's handsome and good to look at. This surely must be the Lord's anointed. Just as a little aside, a really funny little story, but there's actually a phrase or a term called heightism, which is the same sort of thing as racism, racism, discrimination against people based on their race. There literally is something called heightism, discrimination against people on the basis of their height. And I found this out on a website called supportfortheshort.org. Supportfortheshort.org. I'm clearly not one of its founding members. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, listen to this, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And so as we just pause for a moment, because this is a critical uh, juncture in the story that we are um, speaking about today, I want to ask you the question, what is the moral of the story so far? And I'm sure most of you would agree, clearly it's we mustn't judge a book by its cover. Would you agree? The Lord doesn't judge by outward appearance. We mustn't judge a book by its cover. We mustn't judge people by the way they appear. This is rampant in the city in which we live, isn't it? Especially in the summer. You notice all around you the the time and the effort and the money that people spend to, to adorn their outward appearance so that they cannot be judged by others or so they can be judged and be judged acceptable by the community. Maybe that's something even you struggle with yourself. But I want to ask the question this morning is asking what is the moral of the story the correct way that we are to actually approach this text? I think the temptation that we all face when we read Old Testament narrative and we've just spent five weeks looking at Ruth and we're about to do 11 weeks, I think it is, or eight weeks through the life of David is the right way to approach those texts to ask the question, what is the moral of the story? Let me give you an example, because I think if we do that, all we do is we reduce God's word to something of a a biblical fable that has some sort of application in our life. How many of you have heard of Aesop's fables? I'm sure most of you have heard of Aesop's fables. The whole point of Aesop's fables is to describe a situation in order to give a moral. Let me read one of Aesop's short fables that has the very same application as the story that we've just read here in 1 Samuel 16. A very young mouse made his first trip out of the hole into the world. He returned to tell his mother of the wonderful wonderful creatures that he had seen. "'Oh, mother,' said the mouse, "'I saw such curious animals. There was one beautiful animal with soft, striped fur and yellow eyes.' And when she saw me, she waved her long tail as if she was glad to see me. But then I saw another animal, a terrible-looking monster. His head was all red, and his feet had long, sharp claws. And when he saw me, he spread out his sides and cried with a large, loud, powerful, frightening wail. It scared me so that I scurried away in fear without even talking to the kind animal that I'd seen before. Mother Mouse smiled. My dear, that horrible creature was a harmless rooster that only eats seeds and grain. But that beautiful animal with the soft fur was a mouse-eating cat. You are lucky she did not have you for dinner. And next time, be more careful and remember never to judge others by their looks. If we approach this text that we've just read, and we ask ourselves, what is the moral of the story? Can I be so bold as to say we are doing nothing more than trying to find reading an Aesop's fable and looking for the life application in our own lives? And friends, there is application in these, word, in these stories. There are life lessons to learn, but that's not the way we should be approaching the passage. The way we should be approaching, approaching the passage is, is, is in this way, learning the life lessons but asking this, what does this passage teach me about Jesus? Do you remember Luke 24, on the, that story of the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus just after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead? And they were confused as to what had happened. And the Bible says in Luke 24, Jesus got with those disciples. And starting with Moses and the prophets, He began to unpack all that the Old Testament spoke about Him. Jesus helped us see that the Old Testament is all about Him. It all points towards Him. And when we approach these narratives, that needs to be the fundamental question. If we just take the story of David and apply it to our own lives. You know what the result is? The result is we are encouraged to become like David. And that's not a bad thing. But David was a fallible man, just like you and me. But when we take the truths that we find about the story of David and ask ourselves, what does this teach us about Jesus? Then our motivation, friends, is not to become like David, but to become like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that we are called to become. When we approach the Old Testament that way, transformation happens. And this is why. We start to see the scriptures not for what we have to do to please God, but what God has already done in Jesus to change and transform us. And so I want to encourage you guys over these next 11 weeks as we we unpack various stories from the life of David. Can I encourage you, please, don't look and say, how can I become like David? Ask yourself the question, and I hope those who are preaching this series will help us understand how this points to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords verse 7, I think, wonderfully captures, and I want to just take five minutes just to kind of unpack our series uh, or set the scene for our upcoming series. Look at verse 7 with me because it wonderfully captures the heart of what we're trying to communicate um, in this series in David. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider the appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. Look at this. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. So what we're going to be asking ourselves in the coming weeks is, is what does it mean to have a heart after God? Now remember, we're not asking the question, what does it mean to have a heart like David? We're asking the question, what does it mean to have God's heart? Have we allowed Jesus to take hold of our hard hearts and transform them into his soft heart of flesh? Have we allowed the the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with the love of the Father as he promises to do in Romans chapter five? That's the heart, that's the intention, that's the focus of the series that we are speaking about. This heart after God was the thing that God wanted more than anything to see in his king. Don't turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Samuel says this to Saul. Oh, sorry, God says this to Samuel. Sorry, God says this to Samuel. He says, he says, Samuel, I have sought out a man after my own heart. And Acts chapter 13, wonderfully, when Paul is preaching, wonderfully describes how God viewed David. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the first part of it says this. I have found in David a man after my own heart. Just think about this for a moment. This is, this is a, a, a centuries after David has lived his life. This is after Paul knows very well of the, of the things that David has done. You're going to learn in weeks to come of David's greatness as a leader but David's incredible fallibility as a man. He murdered and he raped in the same night. And yet, God says of David, here is a man after my own heart. What an incredible legacy that is. I remember being challenged with a question once. I was with a a friend. His his name is Terry Kruger. He's going to be ministering here on our church birthday. Back in South Africa, he was the man who who kind of was our father in the faith uh, many, many years ago. And and he he looked at us in the eye once and he said, what legacy do you want to leave here on earth? And that question so challenged me. What, what legacy do you want to leave? How do you want to be remembered? He was an incredible business person. He was an amazing, he, he achieved so much for the world. No, or do you want to be, be remembered? This person had God's heart. This person breathed the presence of God. So not only was this heart of God what, what God wanted in his leaders, but can I suggest, friends, it's what God wants for us more than anything else. He wants us to have a heart that is after him. He wants us to have a heart that is filled with unrivaled devotion and love and worship for him. What is the greatest commandment when Jesus is asked? What does he say when he's asked that question? Jesus, tell us the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your strength and with all of your soul or some variation of that. Love the Lord your God with an unrivaled devotion. But then he doesn't stop there. He says the second commandment is almost exactly the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, I don't want to get sidetracked, but this, 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 this value or this, this, this characteristic of love is the most important virtue that we can have in our hearts. When the Bible tells us about the fruits of the Spirit and it says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self control, let me tell you, love is first because love is most important. It's not possible to be a joyful person without being a loving person. It's not possible to be patient with people without being a loving person or to have brotherly kindness. God wants us to be a people of love. It's by the love of God that people will know that we are His children. Can I say, friends, love is the greatest advertisement for the church of Jesus Christ. Better than any announcement, better than any billboard, better than any website, better than any flyer that we hand out. It's when people see the love of God operating in us that they'll say, those are a people that I want to be with. We are challenged in God's word, not just to love everybody, but to love one another. That's a lot more specific, isn't it? Don't just love everybody, love one another. Because God wants us to be a community of love, a heart of worship, a heart of love, a heart of devotion, a heart that desires to do whatever pleases the Lord. And the wonderful result of having this heart after God, uh, sorry, Psalm 25, I think it's verse 14 says this, In the message, it says, God friendship is reserved for God worshipers. Isn't that a beautiful uh, kind of paraphrase of Psalm 25? I think it's verse 14. God friendship is reserved for God worshipers. When we become worshipers of God, God draws close to us. God draws, it becomes, we have this intimate friendship with God. And in that place... God begins to speak his plan and purpose over our lives. The second part of Psalm 25 verse 14, God God friendship is reserved for God worshipers. And then it goes on to say, they are the ones that God confides in. Friends, this is the heart that Jesus had. Jesus was secure in the love of the Father for him. Remember Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized in water. God speaks over his son. This is my son whom I love. Jesus knew of the Father's love. Jesus loved the Father back with absolute and total devotion. Jesus fulfilled the greatest commandment. And then what is perhaps most challenging for me is that Jesus had one purpose in life when he was here on earth, to live in such a way so as to please God the Father. John chapter five, verse 30 says this. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. It doesn't mean I am not able to do anything on my own. It means I choose to not do anything on my own except that which pleases the one who sent me. Friends, I want that for my life. I want to be one who says yes to God. I want to be one who doesn't pursue my own desires, but pursues the desires of God the Father and only him. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by. That sounds like a wonderful spiritual name, Shammah. Jesus says, Jesse had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, "Nor has the Lord chosen this one." Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, But Samuel said to him, "The Lord has not chosen these." And so he asked Jesse, "Are these all of the sons that you have?" Just think about this now. Just consider what David's father is about to say. Just consider the fact that Jesse got wind of the man of the Lord, was coming to minister in his house, and he gathers the whole family together, except David doesn't get an invitation. Imagine if that was you. He, he doesn't even mention him by name. He says this. He says, yes, there's still the youngest. He's the runt. That literally, that's literally what the word means. He's the youngest. He's the runt. He's out in the bush looking after the sheep. I didn't even think it worthy of, of, for, for him to come and be with us. Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I found this an incredible, incredible challenge. His own family rejected David. David. His own family had absolutely no prophetic hope or prophetic vision or any anticipation of David turning out to be anything. And so what did Jesse, what did his father do? He sent him out to the bush and said, go and take care of the sheep out in obscurity where no one will even think about you. And what I find so amazing, friends, is in this place of obscurity is where God is watching and God is working king, and God is the one who opens the door for, for, you know, for David to be able to come into the presence of Samuel so that he can be anointed as king. David didn't put his hand up and say, Lord, I'm going to bust through this door. No, he tr- entrusted himself to God and waited for God to open the door. Friends, there are times when you and I will face seasons of obscurity. There are times when you and I will face those times when no one has any hope for our future. But in those times, I wanna implore you and and I implore myself, do the thing, no matter how small it is, do the thing that God has asked you to do. David was out in the bush, ignored and forgotten by his family, but he did the one thing that he was given to do and that was to faithfully tend his father's sheep. And as he faithfully looked after his father's sheep, he would occasionally get out his little ukulele because it would be too big to carry a guitar. He'd bring out his, ukulele, his little ukulele and his, and his journal and he'd begin to write worship songs as he worshiped the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in those times, he trusted in God's protection to be able to defeat the lion and the bear and, and protect the sheep. And we're gonna see this, so the significance of that in a few moments But David remained faithful to do the things that God had given him to do. I want to say, friends, in obscurity, in those seasons of obscurity which we all face, keep your heart soft. Keep your heart soft. Don't allow your heart to become bitter. Be faithful with God, with what God had sent him to do. We nearly finished. Verse 12. And so he sent him and had him brought in. And David was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Ask yourself this question. What happened to David after he was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13? What happened to David? Absolutely nothing. It took 13 years before David was able to experience the reality of the promise of God. He had the call of God. He had the anointing of God, but he never had the crown. Friends, this is the thing that we need to grasp. The calling of God, the purpose and plan of God for every person sitting here comes with opposition, number one. Opposition from the devil. When you receive or when you believe or when God speaks a promise over you, let me tell you, the devil is just as interested in in stopping you from walking into the plan of God. The call of God comes with opposition. Number two, the call of God comes with us having to face our weakness. There is not one Bible character, there is not one person recorded in these scriptures who was chosen by God because of his or her ability. Not one person. They all had to face their weakness. When the Lord called Peter, Peter said, Lord, away from me, I am a sinful man. Jesus didn't dispute that. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, Peter, you're a great man, you're not sinful. No, he didn't dispute that, but he called him nonetheless. When Ezekiel was called, what did he do? He fell on his face as though dead. When Moses was called, Lord, Lord, I've tried this leadership thing, and it failed miserably. Please Please can you call my brother? We have to face our weakness, friends. And the third thing, opposition, weakness, the third thing that the call of God comes with is delay. And I think that's often the hardest thing for us to face. You see, delay often comes from God. God, the very one who calls us, is often the very one who pushes the pause button because he wants to see where our hearts are at. When we are able to overcome opposition, we learn something about the power of God. When we are able to overcome our own weakness, we learn something about the grace of God. When we are able to overcome the delays or when we are able to endure the delays of God, we learn something about the faithfulness of God. And so what did David do after he was anointed king? He went right back to doing what the Lord had had asked him to do, faithfully serving and tending the sheep, Continuing to worship God with all of his hearts, with, with all of his heart, and trusting in the Lord for his protection. Friends, in those seasons when we find ourselves in, in obscurity, those are the very things, I guarantee, those are the very things God is going to use one day when he opens up the door for you. What, what was said of David in Psalm 81 at the end of his life? Here was a man, David was a man who led, who shepherded God's people with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. David learned how to shepherd God's people because David was faithful in shepherding his father's sheep. What was the thing that David was perhaps most famous for? The fact that he ushered in godly, heavenly worship. Where did David learn that? In obscurity, in the fields where no one was watching him. Where did David learn how to trust in the Lord when he faced Goliath? He said this, My God has delivered me from the lion and the bear. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? God was faithful in the small things. God is faithful in the big things. We must be careful how we respond in obscurity. I wanted to share a very quick personal story, but for... Many years back in South Africa, when I was part of an eldership team, I remember having this conviction that God had called me to preach. And I remember getting very frustrated with the lack of opportunities that were given to me. And I share this story simply because it illustrates my struggle with obscurity and hopefully it'll encourage you. I sat there for five years getting very bitter and frustrated with the leader of the church because I wasn't given opportunity. We must be careful to guard our hearts when we face those seasons of obscurity. The Bible says that we walk into the plan and the purpose of God through faith and through patience. Through faith in God's faithfulness and patience in God's timing. Maybe you're sitting here today and you know something of the call of God. You know God has given you a promise. You know God has spoken into your life. You know God has a plan and a purpose for you. But you haven't yet seen the fulfillment of that promise. Well, I want to say a couple things to end off with. Number one, I want to encourage you, stand on the promises of God. In those times when, when, when there seems to be delay, in those times when God seems to be not opening up doors of opportunity, friends, don't take it upon yourself to burst the door open. Stand on the promise of God. Stand firm on the promise of God. You know Ephesians chapter six, when Paul is speaking about spiritual warfare, what is the one thing he says above all else? When you've done everything else, he says, stand That's sometimes all we can do. God, all I can do is stand on your faithfulness. Stand on your faithfulness. Number two, trust in God's timing. Trust in God's timing. I have done this all too often. Broken open, kicked down or burst through doors that God had not opened for me. And I look back and I think to myself, was that me or was that God who made that opportunity? I have vowed for myself never to have to face that question again. I say that to say, I want God to open up doors of opportunity for me. Trust in God's timing. Trust that in the right season, God would open up the door of opportunity for you to walk into your promise. Number three, While you wait, while you're dealing with delay. Number three, worship the Lord. Chris read from Philippians chapter four. Great, great verse. That's what worship does. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And it goes on to say, and the peace of God would guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. What worshiping while we wait does is it guards our heart from bitterness because we know, of the, because we know the nearness of the Lord. While you wait, while you're dealing with the delays in God, worship Him. And then number four, stand on His promise. Trust in His timing. Worship while you wait. Number four, continue to be faithful with what He's asked you to do. Continue to be faithful with what He's asked you to do. Friends, if God has given you an instruction or a request, or He's asked you to do something that you see, you think might be so menial, and He's called you to so much more, can I encourage you? Be faithful with that. Because the promise of God's word is this. We're faithful with little. He'll entrust much to us. Can we close our eyes and pray? Before I hand over to Chris, I just want to take a few moments just to ask the Holy Spirit to to minister deep into our hearts this morning. I know that this word, and I don't say this with with arrogance, but I know this word is for every person here. And the the reason I can say that is you are either currently dealing with God's delay or one day you will have to deal with understanding the delays of God, understanding or trying to understand, God, you've promised this, but I haven't yet seen the fulfillment. What do I do? And so I'm gonna ask that we just all just open our hearts and say, God, God, would you, would you come by your spirit? Would you come, Lord, and, and encourage us by your spirit? Lord, we have enjoyed this morning such an incredible time of worship, and, and, and Lord, just enjoying your continued presence in our lives. And Father, I, I ask for every person here, including myself, Lord, for, for your manifest presence to strengthen us and to give us courage in times of delay. Father, we want to know your power as we overcome the opposition of the devil. Lord, we want to we know your grace as we, as we stand up despite our weakness. But Lord, help us to, to understand today in a deeper way your incredible faithfulness as we continue to trust you, Lord, despite the delay in seeing your promises fulfilled. Holy Spirit, would you... Speak to every heart this morning. Would you encourage every person seated here today? May we be ministered to, Lord God. May we be transformed today because we've seen you, Jesus. Lord, let us not go away from here thinking about how to become like David. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be like you, Jesus. Help us in that. Just before you open your eyes and before I hand over to Chris, there might be someone here today, maybe visiting for the first time, or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, but you know that Jesus is not Lord of your life, and maybe you've been looking for purpose or meaning or understanding of what this life is all about. We can search for that in so many places, through business, through success, through religion, through our our family through our own attempts to try and find significance and, and, and purpose in our lives. But the Bible teaches that it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find fullness of life. The Bible says that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That truth that the Bible is talking about is the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're here today and you're saying, Steve, I, I want to know Jesus. I want to know what it, what, what it means to be in relationship with God. I want to I know what it means to be his, his son or his daughter. I want to say, my friend, it is simply by saying, Jesus, would you come into my heart? Would you? It's, it's simply by opening up your, your heart and receiving the free gift that is Jesus Christ. If that's you today, you, if you don't know Jesus and you're saying, Steve, I want to know Jesus, would you pray this prayer right where you are seated? Jesus. I thank you that you died on the cross for me. I acknowledge that I am empty without you. I've looked at myself. I've looked at other things to try and fill that emptiness. But I know this morning that you are the only one who can do that. Jesus, would you come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin and I thank you for the forgiveness that is found in you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I'm going to ask that you please come forward at the end of our meeting today, which is going to end in the next minute or two. Come forward and, 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 and have one of the ministry team pray with you and, int- and let them introduce themselves to you. Thanks.